Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. I don't know what, you know, drama I've waded into here, but... He Who Shall Not Be Named was a great host as well, but uh, we're glad to have you now, Manuel. Yeah, we're expanding the horizons of this podcast. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Liam Dillon, housing affordability reporter at the Los Angeles Times. And I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter with Cal Matters. It's great to be here. Yes. And today, June 21st, 2021. Hello. Hello, Manuela. Hello. And hello to, hello to all of you. It is very nice to be here and to be back. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm Manuela. I just started at Cal Matters a few months ago. I'm covering housing at the state capitol, bringing in a little bit of the sort of policy and politics side of housing, but also really looking at housing across the state and just how the affordability crisis is impacting Californians everywhere. Yeah, so just to back up a little bit, we're a bi-weekly podcast, Give Me Shelter, talking about housing affordability problems across California. Sometimes we even venture out in the rest of the country. We've been around for almost four years now, which is an absurd thing to think about. But this is a pretty momentous day because we're welcoming Manuela as a new host. And we're going to be sharing some thoughts like we've done in the past in this podcast on our work and discussing key issues around the state. So in many ways, it's going to look like a lot like the podcast was previously. And as a newcomer on the scene, I am really trying to make this issue as accessible as possible to people. While there is going to be a lot of sort of insidery, wonky type terms, I think a key mission of mine is to translate it for as many people as possible so that everyone can be part of this debate that's really impacting all of us. So don't have to be a pro, accessible as possible. We'll try to keep the acronyms to an absolute minimum and you know, that's great because as I recall, Matt, our previous host, was very heavy on the acronyms. That was like his favorite thing in the world. And so I'm very glad to hear that that's not what you like. For sure. I'm definitely on the normal people side of, <laughs> I remember there was an episode where you brought on a normal person and that's yes. definitely me. So we do have an episode today where we're going to talk about a lot of things. We've been gone for about six months and obviously there's a lot that has been happening in and around the pandemic. And we're going to talk about three things. Eviction protections at the onset of the pandemic, there was significant amount of fear and there still is that ultimately we may be reaching a point where there's a cliff of potential evictions that folks who have lost their jobs and other sources of income may face. We'll talk about homelessness in Los Angeles and we have the perfect guest to talk about homelessness issues in LA. It's my LA Times colleague, Ben Oreskes, who's been covering this issue in very great depth for years. We had a great conversation with Ben going over some sort of key developments over the past year during the pandemic, most notably the rise of encampments in sort of some iconic Los Angeles locations, Echo Park and the Venice Boardwalk. And so we get into what happened there and what's coming next. And then also we're going to talk about Manuela because she's new and you all should get to know her. And we'll also talk a little bit about you, Liam. I think it'll be great for me and our new listeners to learn a little bit about who you are as well. Yeah, so I'm from the East Coast. Originally, I grew up in Philadelphia, and I've been reporting in California now for over a decade. I started in San Diego, and the LA Times hired me back in 2016 to go to the State Capitol Bureau and write about a bunch of issues. And I quickly kind of glommed on to housing and writing about that. So I was in Sacramento covering all the legislative policy, wonky and not, up until the end of 2019, where I moved down to LA. So I'm in our main office now, if we actually had an office, working out of the home office today. And I write about increasingly now about kind of housing affordability issues on the ground around the state. So during the pandemic, went to San Francisco to learn about folks who were moving to San Francisco from Oakland because it was cheaper, which is certainly a reversion of what things are typically are in the Bay Area. Spent some time around Lake Tahoe, which was the hardest assignment of my career, to write about folks in Truckee who were moving there full time. Because if you can work from anywhere, then why not work where you can ski and lay on a boat, right? 
And then I also went to your stomping grounds, Manuela, as we'll learn. In Fresno, Fresno has been sort of in many ways the hottest housing market and rental market in the entire country. Rent increases there over the past few years have been you know, over 30% higher than really anywhere else in the country. And so what that meant kind of at the high end and also at the low end in Fresno. And so I'm working on a few longer term stories now, but these are the kind of things that I'm going to be doing in my new role. But let's talk about you. You're brand new. And first is that you are, in fact, not Matt. Is that right? That is the most important fact about me. Yes. So I just moved here from Fresno. I'm in Sacramento now. I'm loving the heat. Not really. My AC is actually broken. I was in Fresno for the last two years at the Fresno Bee and CalMatters reporting on income inequality doing stories around the pandemic, around workers at foster farms, about homelessness, some housing issues as well, police accountability, anything and everything relating to inequality, which is pretty much everything. And yeah, I joined CalMatters to focus exclusively on housing and have been catching up the last couple months. But To back up a little bit, originally I'm from Argentina. I moved to the U.S. when I was seven with my family, moved kind of all over. I was in New Hampshire, New Jersey, London, went to school in D.C. Yeah, so we should talk about that. We actually have some things in common. We've been learning about each other. So we both went to Georgetown. We both worked for the Georgetown Voice, which is the best paper. paper. Let's do a couple like kind of five questions. So you said you just lived all over the world. What's the place you like the best? Definitely Buenos Aires. That's where I was born and where all my family lives, except for my parents. They're in Miami. I also love Miami. But Buenos Aires is definitely closest to home. You know, we were talking before, you said, you know, the first time you went to Fresno was a bit of a shock. What was that like? Had you been to California before? This was just to take the job at the B? Yeah. So... I definitely had the typical idea of California, that being San Francisco or L.A. I had been to Los Angeles once very briefly and just kind of imagined Fresno being not terribly different from these places that I knew. And I um, landed in San Francisco and rented a car with my dad and we started driving towards Fresno and just going through farmland and mm-hmm. lots and lots of agricultural land. And I knew this about Fresno. I knew objectively where the Central Valley was located, but I didn't hadn't really clicked. Well, it's a whole other thing to see it, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. It's actually yeah. land. Yeah. And it was definitely a shocker. And people love to hate on Fresno. But I will fight anyone who tries to say something bad. The place ended up growing a lot on me and I'm still visiting regularly. I went this weekend. But yeah, the agricultural scene was definitely a shocker once I actually started like driving through. Do you have friends who were like, could this happen to me when I first moved to California, who were like, oh, you're in California, so you must be like in LA every weekend. You must be in San Francisco like every weekend, right? Oh, yeah. Any concept of like geography? How's the beach? Every question, you know, from my relatives, <laughs> how's the beach? And, you know, I'm in like 90 degree weather, walking through parking lots. What excites you the most about like housing reporting or doing this podcast? I think that what most attracts me to the housing beat is just how much it affects every single person, no matter mm. what income bracket they're in, no matter what their lived experiences, everyone needs shelter. And it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to access it. And it's having some really heartbreaking consequences that we see on the street every single day. So looking at how it's impacting people and what solutions people are working on and why it's been so impossible to do anything about it, just how huge of a problem it is and how no one seems to be able to fix it. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely drawn to that about this beat. I think we'll end this section with the, I got by far the most important question, which is, do you actually eat avocados? I'm very stereotypical millennial. I eat a lot of avocados. <laughs> so what's your, what's your style, favorite avocado style? Yeah, I had like two answers for this, you know, the typical. Oh, so you like, you like, like prepped this answer. You like thought about this. I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. I did. This is all I've been thinking about. 
Okay, I just love a typical avocado toast. Classic. Classic. Classic of course. Yeah. My favorite snack when I was a kid and that I still eat sometimes is you slice the avocado in half, take out the pit, right. and then put in a mix of mayonnaise and ketchup. We call it salsa golf. But they actually sell this at the supermarket. People can't see my face, but like I'm like speechless. I don't have anything to say. This is the research I did this weekend. They sell it. It's called mayo chup. It's mayonnaise and ketchup mixed together. It's a pink sauce. And anyways, so I would put that in the middle and okay. then you just eat it with a spoon and wow. try to get even bits of green and pink. It's pretty delicious. Now that we've talked enough about me and avocados, we're going to head into the avocado of the fortnight. And Liam, can you walk us through what that means? So the avocado of the fortnight is our look at the most absurd or strange California housing survey of the past couple of weeks. In this case, we'll even extend it to the past couple of months. So you may be asking yourself, why do we even call this an avocado of the fortnight? What's the avocado element of it? Why did we just talk about avocado toast and Noella's favorite kind of avocado? I want to know. It turns out, right around the time we were starting the podcast a few years ago, there was this Australian entrepreneur who had a very kind of a very hot take about housing and millennials. And his take was that the real reason that millennials could not afford to buy a house was not crushing student loan debt, not crushing income inequality, not any other thing that's crushing millennials, but rather their penchant for purchasing avocado toast. And it turns out that that's actually true. I am sure that at this point, had I not bought, been on my you know twice weekly avocado toast habit, I'd have plenty of money for a down payment on a house in LA. I'm not sure about you, but that is definitely the case for me. Did he look into whether it was made at home versus purchased elsewhere? Like artisanal avocado toast versus like self-made exactly. avocado toast. Yeah, this is some distinction that did not get to our uh, Australian entrepreneur, sadly. So. We can pose this question as this podcast moves forward. Anyways, back to the avocado of the last few months slash fortnight. So this one takes us to San Diego. And Manuela, I have, a, I have a question for you about this. So what first comes to your mind when you think of a cemetery? Um, uh, I have nothing clever, just dead people. How about affordable housing? Does that come to your mind when you think of? Definitely not, just... Definitely not. No. Right. So, but yet, yet, that is exactly what the city of San Diego says was going to happen. Affordable housing was going to be built on the site of the only Catholic cemetery in the county. So how did we get here? Well, every eight years, the state requires cities to plan for where they want to put new homes, plan for new growth. This process has been a bit of a joke, paper exercise, a shell game, as a city councilman was quoted in a major story. This law's failures is called the housing element law and to unfortunately add a wonky term to this description. Back to this avocado, in some aspect of shell gaminess, the city of San Diego and in their initial housing plan said that new housing was going to go on this cemetery site. So I suppose they were going to dig up the graves and put affordable housing there. Not going to happen. Wow. Yeah, that's the opposite of brilliant idea. Did they think maybe that people would forget there was a cemetery there? I can't imagine the logic behind that. And it turns out neither could the city because during the hearing on this, the city staff said that was a mistake. Cemetery will not be included in the city's housing plan that they submit to the state. However, there are lots of other new sites for would-be development like affordable housing development, like waterfront hotels, new supermarkets that are included in the city's plan. And so there was some consternation among advocacy groups that the city's plan was not robust enough to ensure that enough growth in San Diego was actually going to happen. And as I alluded to earlier, this is a bit of an endemic problem with this state law, is that a lot of cities over the years have proposed putting new housing in places that were never actually going to happen. So in any way, we know the cemetery is not a realistic solution because any housing built on this site will simply implode and disappear into another dimension at some point. You don't get the reference, no? No. Poltergeist? We should note that, yes, Manuel and I did go to Georgetown and did work for the same paper, but so many years apart. 
So we're going to bring on Ben Oreska soon to talk about homelessness in LA, but I think it's important for us to just make a note of what's going on with eviction protections statewide. Listeners may recall at the beginning of the pandemic, a bunch of localities, cities and counties, and also the state passed protections that would prevent those who were unable to make their rent during the pandemic or had a pandemic-related reason for that from being evicted through the courts. That was the hope and the plan. These protections on a statewide level are supposed to end on June 30th. That's where they're scheduled to end. And also, at the same time, as a part of some of the coronavirus-related stimulus programs that passed at the federal level, the federal government provided, what is it, Manuela, over $5 billion? 2.6 the first time and 2.6 again. Wow, okay, yeah. So over $5 billion to provide rental assistance for struggling low-income renters and landlords, which in theory would alleviate the need for any of these evictions due to unable to pay rent. So there's a lot that's happening here. We want to tell you where they are, but things could change very, very quickly as we're taping this on Monday, June 21st. By the time this airs, some of this could be different, right? Exactly. But you, did, you had a story, Manuela, that published this morning that kind of talked about where things were. And so why don't you tell us what's the status of the money that's being handed out? So there's a huge link there between the eviction protections and the money, because as you pointed out, at first it was people haven't been able to pay, they need more time. And now the question is, okay, the money is there to help people pay, but it hasn't gone out. So California has already received $2.6 billion from the federal government that they set up a way to pay out in January. And of those $2.6 billion, the state was responsible for 1.4 and cities okay. and counties were responsible for another 1.2. So of that $1.4 billion with a B, the state has gotten now about $50 million. Obviously, six months on, that's a pretty terrible record. What are they saying the reasons are for why it's taken so long? So another shocking number there is that the amount of money that people have applied for successfully sort of completed their applications is for less than half of that money, around $600 million. So people aren't even, according to this logic, not even applying for the full amount that's there. And so the reason for it that we've heard from advocates who are trying to implement this program on the ground is that the application is just too hard. Pretty much the application took hours and hours to complete on average, upwards of 90 minutes. It was basically really hard for people to put together the documentation proving that they mm -hmm. had lost their jobs or that they had lost income. And basically that for the more informal job sectors, that becomes even harder where people might not have the documentation to prove certain parts of their employment or when they did and didn't work. And so what was happening is that people just weren't completing their applications. And so the state eased those documentation requirements to say, now you just have to, as with unemployment, sort of submit this attestation that you lost your job. So basically just like pledge it under exactly. you know, penalty of perjury or whatever that formal legalistic language is to say, hey, I lost wages. Here's how much I'm back on you know, I owe rent or things like that. And that's what they were worried about is there was so much fraud with unemployment. Could that happen again? And yeah. what advocates said was with so much focus on preventing that from happening, what ended up happening is that no one being able to apply for this or a much more limited pool of people being able to apply for the money, which also falls along, you know, income and racial lines and becomes even harder in rural areas or places that just don't have the language access. So that was a big part to translating the application to languages other than Spanish and English. And all these changes have only come online sort of mid-June so we're starting to see a lot more applications come through is what the state told me for the story. But a big portion of it, another reason that could have impacted how few people applied is that 
landlords had to buy into the program as well. And right. under the current rules, they could only get up to 80% of missed rent as opposed to 100%. So mm-hmm. you had some people saying, I'd rather get the full 100% and not participate in this program. And so yeah. part of the negotiations now for going forward is, okay, how much of that missed back rent are we going to pay and who is going to qualify for it? And there's also this targeting too, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I did a story up at San Francisco and talked to a family woman who was a house cleaner in a one bedroom with her husband and three children. She lost her work as a house cleaner immediately at the start of the pandemic. They were kind of hanging on and able to pay their rent. And then her husband got sick, was working in a packing plant. Then when he was unable to go to work and when he got better, the boss told him, hey, don't even come back. At that point, they couldn't pay their rent. And so what ended up happening was they just moved out. You know, they moved in and packed 10 people into a three bedroom with the woman's mother. And under any normal definition of needing rental assistance, this family certainly needed it. But under these rules of the state program, because they didn't actually owe any back rent to their landlord, they're not eligible to get it. And you can imagine infinite numbers of stories with different iterations or different nuances like that story that is, again, kind of a barrier between the folks who have been economically affected clearly in trouble with their housing situation and now having to go to a more precarious housing situation and then unable to access this really remarkably large pile of money that's unfortunately not being spent or handed out to both tenants and landlords in any sort of efficient way. Yeah, that's definitely a big consideration is if a person moved out either to pay cheaper rent or to move in with family, but also people who took out debt in other forms. So on credit cards or through a payday lender or through Family friends. members, yeah. Exactly. I talked to a woman who took out $3,000 in loans from friends that's really impacted her relationship with them and her ability to navigate any other kind of assistance she needs for health issues. And the state money just wasn't applicable to those situations. So I think that's a big part of the need and it didn't really fall into the clean cut rules that the state laid out, largely led by the federal government of who was eligible and who wasn't. And a lot of it was this disconnect with the people on the ground who really were hardest hit by the pandemic. So as a reaction to all these problems, you reported that it looks like there's some momentum to extend state eviction protections to some further date later on past June 30th. So that's all still getting hammered out. Tenant advocates are pushing to extend the moratorium eviction protections, really, because it doesn't cover every type of eviction through next year or tying it to when this money is all distributed, which there is a lot of it. And it's been a pretty slow process. And the Apartment Association, sort of the main representative for landlords, has been pushing for September which at the longest their preference was to not extend these any further, but they also recognize people need to get paid. So with the June 30th deadline creeping up, there's not a lot of time for lawmakers to put together a deal on this, but it's not too different from the last two times eviction protections were extended those decisions also came down to the wire. So we'll be talking a lot more in depth about this if and when there is sort of any deal or if there isn't a deal, we'll talk about the implications of that as well. But we wanted to give kind of uh, people an update on where things stood, at least now as we're taping, because it's kind of the most pressing issue that's happening you know, statewide in this area. So we're here with my illustrious Los Angeles Times colleague, Ben Oreskes, Los Angeles homeless history reporter par excellence. Ben, thanks so much for being with us. Before we dive into questions, I have been waiting for this moment for two years. I've tweeted at them. I've emailed them. I've begged in person. It was always, we don't do that. Got to the point where when Liam called me, he made sure I wasn't driving just in case I had a heart attack or something. So I sort of have to credit you, Manuela, for like coming in and something changed and now I'm here and just I'm so excited to be here with y'all. So Matt just left. He had come into the building for a minute and I told him you were coming on the show and we joked that I was going to come on and tell you 
that we were having some technical difficulties and we were going to have to you were going to leave just me at the cut altar. you, you cut you out of the, the segment. Yeah. If this were a movie, my internet would cut <laughs> out or something like that. Ben, tell us how long you've been writing about homelessness in LA. I have covered this beat, which is expansive and sort of lacks a conventional sort of guardrails for probably the last three years or so. Previously written a newsletter at the paper, and during that time had sort of become interested in this issue. Like any person who moves to LA becomes interested in this issue by being amazed, horrified, shocked by what I saw on the streets. I had moved from DC. I grew up in New York City. I had experienced homelessness, but had never seen it at the scale or size of what you see in Los Angeles in terms of unsheltered homelessness. And when my time as the writer of the Essential California newsletter, like Share, Subscribe, ended, I sort of began covering this full time. And I cover it from two points of view. One, sort of the city, county, state, regional, whatever response to a catastrophe on our streets. And then also an effort to uplift very human stories that are playing out. This is sort of the most visible manifestation of poverty that we have in America. And trying to explain that and explain why government has struggled to end it or solve it is like an endlessly fascinating subject in my mind. Maybe we can get started talking about L.A. and what portion of the homeless population of California lives there and why it's such a huge issue. So How we count homeless people is in and of itself like a whole complicated subject. For the purposes of this, we'll use the point in time count, which is something that's either done every year or biannually mandated by the federal government. The last count, which occurred before the coronavirus in 2020, so January of 2020, on any given night, 160,000 people, give or take, are homeless in California. Of those, about 66,000 are in Los Angeles County. 75% of them are unsheltered. About 40,000 of them are in the city of Los Angeles. It's the epicenter of this crisis, and it's the sort of thing that animates our politics and frustrates residents who don't like what they see on the streets, angers activists who feel that the priorities of people on the streets are less than that of business owners. It seeps into every conversation you have in this city. So why is it so bad in LA? Like, why is it the epicenter? I think homelessness as we see it now, you place it in a history of housing discrimination in LA, where after World War II, there was an enormous explosion of homelessness during the Great Depression. And then throughout this time, and Liam is obviously the best person to talk about this, but like the lack of growth in the number of housing units that were created in LA coupled with an increase in the population, just made it harder and harder for people to find places to live. In 1998, the city's population increased by 65,000 people, but there was only a net increase of housing units around 1,900. So you can just sort of see the disparity there. And that goes on for decades. And in the mid-aughts, you also see more efforts under William Bratton, the LAPD police chief, of like sort of broken windows policing, a real effort to kind of enforce quality of life crimes. So things like anti-camping ordinances, things around vagrancy, tents. And we sort of see the alphabet soup of local government overlaid by regional government, overlaid by state and federal government really struggling to be nimble in attacking this issue. And you get to 2015, 2016, 2017, as homelessness explodes. We go from something like 39,000 in 2011, again, by 2018, we're at 52, 53,000. These numbers are imperfect, but it gives you a sense of the scale. By 2016, 2017, there's a will and a desire among public officials to do something in a big way. And they pass a city and a county tax and bond measure One, the city measure is set up to finance sort of the construction of the most involved housing for homeless people. We call it permanent supportive housing. It pairs brick and mortar with services. And then the county passed a sales tax measure that was meant to create a revenue stream to fund the services to respond to homelessness. And those both passed. And even since then, homelessness has continued to expand. I was looking back at stories I wrote last year and the year before talking about the growth of homelessness. They also talk about how many people got off the streets or were helped. And we're talking about 20,000, 30,000 people helped in various different ways. So it speaks to the expansion of the system, but also we let a problem get so bad without big thinking 
in the midst of huge tectonic shifts in our economy and our criminal justice system, these things all conspire to make this problem very visible on our streets and make it really hard without big movement to change the paradigm with which we help people. Certainly when I talk to in policy or even regular day-to-day people, you get a lot of sense of like a lot of very strongly held beliefs on who homeless people are and the reasons why they're homeless. And maybe we can kind of talk through some of the statistics or things that you're aware of as it relates to folks who are, I guess what we'll call economically homeless, folks who may have some mental health or addiction issues. But Chris, can you speak to what we know about some of the demographics of the region's homeless population? I would say that every time you're thinking about data and homelessness, it's a very imperfect thing. My colleague, Doug Smith, who's the former data editor of the LA Times and covers this beat with me, When we talk about the point in time count, he rails about the implied precision of it, meaning we get a very exact number, but in fact, it's a estimate. And yet we trot out this number that the actual number is 66,138. It's not. It's a multiplier that's doing math. I mentioned that all to say is that the struggles we have with data, I think, fuel some of these misconceptions and also make it hard to pierce some of the stereotypes that kind of demonize people who are on the streets. So let's start with everyone's from out of town. I think it's sort of one of the most prevalent tropes about homelessness you see in LA. Everyone's on the beach. You see the woman who comes from Portland or whatever. And in fact, when you look at the demographic survey of the homeless count that's done in LA every year, costs millions of dollars to do, thousands of volunteers fan out and ask people questions. And they create a survey that they use to then create multipliers. We we don't have to get into that, but the survey is a font of information that's really useful. And one of the questions, where did you live before you became homeless? I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I think it's like 65% say they are from LA County. And you see slight changes of those numbers in places like Hollywood and Venice, but the predominant thing you see is that the people who are homeless in your neighborhood tend to be from your neighborhood or have been there for decades. When it comes to mental illness, this is a really complicated one. It drives so much of the demonizing of people and addiction as well. I think a really important thing to think about is imagine being asleep on the streets for one night. It really could do a number on your brain. It just drives you to a place of psychic distress that is hard to understand unless you've been there. We reported in 2019 doing our own analysis of the county's data that 67% of homeless adults in LA County either had a mental illness or a substance abuse disorder. That's far higher than the county reports themselves. They say about 29%. That has to do with different ways of crunching the data. But again, we're looking at a population on the streets that's incredibly impaired, in crisis, and only gets sicker as they stay on the streets. I would direct you to data from the California Policy Lab, Janie Roundtree and her team, who have studied this, where they find that people get far sicker the longer they are on the streets, mentally and physically. And it speaks to this larger problem we have. I mean, we see it in the number of emergency room visits, fires on the streets. We don't have an adequate way of dealing with the health and safety of people who are on the streets, much less giving them a place to live. And what I've heard from experts as well is that the lack of housing puts pressure on these other aspects of life in the sense that if you're dealing with bipolar disorder or you're dealing with substance abuse disorder, it's made much harder to get out of that hole unless you have a place to stay. That is all to say that the people on the streets are very sick and it's not out of a failure on their part. It's about the inadequacies of our social safety net in many ways. Another stat I'd put to y'all is that in 1996, The Board of Supervisors of L.A. County cut the amount that goes towards general relief, which is like the most basic welfare, from $341 to $221. It is currently $221 general relief. So we are talking about people who are living on the streets who have very, very little by way of resources. And it puts them in a terrible position in many ways. Talking about sort of illness and COVID, I wanted to ask you about what the pandemic has done to the homeless population. I know that stats are very hard to come by, 
But what do we know so far about the additional stress that the pandemic has put on people? It's hard to know at this point simply has homelessness gone up because of the pandemic, because we didn't do a point in time count this year. It was actually canceled because of the pandemic. There was this profound fear at the beginning of the virus that because of these comorbidities, as you described, the virus would spread through the homeless population and would swamp the medical system in a way that we feared for the general population, but was actually especially acute because of how sick already many of these people are. They're dealing with respiratory illnesses. They have compromised immune systems. Like some of the largest typhus outbreaks, this is a disease that we thought we had eliminated, actually came in the homeless population over the last couple of decades because of this exact reason. So we have seen that county has tracked the number of confirmed COVID cases. In LA, it's a little over seven or 8,000. And that kind of tracks with the population. But we also have seen that if you were homeless, you were 50% more likely to die, further proving the point that these were people who were already very sick. The county, the city, and the state worked in tandem at the beginning of the virus to rent hotel rooms for homeless people. This is a thing that I think has been much discussed on this podcast. And the goal across the state was 15000 These rooms were being reimbursed by FEMA. The point was we need to get people who are medically compromised over 65 off the streets. L.A. County set their own goal of 15000 Well, and again, the point being you don't want to put people in sort of traditional congregate or the kind of mass shelter that was been used previously because of obviously if you stick a bunch of people in a room, even more concerned about spreading the virus in that sense. So the idea was to isolate folks or have people in their own rooms. Some of the biggest outbreaks at the beginning of the virus were prisons, a big shelter in San Francisco, Boston, and this caused elected officials to act really fast. So they across the state, they rented about 15,000 rooms. In LA, it never got above 4,500, 4,000 roughly. And still, it was one of the largest re-sheltering, rehousing of homeless people ever. So this was this huge effort they put over $100 million into. And it was widely lauded as a success in the sense that we did not see this huge outbreak of COVID that we expected. We did see outbreaks, to be sure, and many of them were in these shelters. But people who were able to shelter in place on the streets were more often than not protected. But it had these other ancillary effects in terms of how services were delivered to them, whether it's food, medical care, you know, legal aid even, things like that. Because the other aspects of like the social safety net were closed. So there was a real worry, and it's sort of evident that it occurred that more people died of other things because of that. I would also say that the city and county responded really forcefully, but was never able to fully close the shelters. So we still saw outbreaks at these places. This is all to say that the virus, as we've seen in various different ways, affected the country's poor. If you were able to shelter alone, you tended to be rich. Here are the poorest people who couldn't do that, and they suffered for it. Another thing that obviously that happened during the pandemic was a huge growth encampments across the city and the region. And I think two in particular have kind of gotten the most attention in Los Angeles, one in Echo Park, one in the beach area in Venice. What was ultimately was the reaction from city officials? And let's just start with Echo Park. In the early weeks after the sort of pandemic became this crisis and we really understood what was going on, the City council suspended cleanups, almost all of them. There were, in a few exceptions, places where they were still doing cleanups. And this was based on CDC, Centers for Disease Control guidance, that was basically like, do not disrupt encampments that are in place. You could be spreading the virus. These are communities where transmission might already be taking place. And you might also be bringing the virus to them because you, outreach worker, you, sanitation worker, are in actually contact with a lot of other people. The result of that was even more limits on the enforcement of certain parts of the municipal code. Much contested ordinances about sitting, sleeping, and lying, ordinances about putting tents up in parks. These are things that are technically banned. And there's a very complicated legal framework for all of this. But in practice, what we have seen across the city is an explosion of tents 
like everywhere. And that preceded the pandemic, but I think the pandemic maybe accelerated some of those trends. For advocates, they would say the city and county had been hiding this, covering this up, criminalizing it, and now people were seeing the reality of what homelessness looked like. So in Echo Park... And I'm sorry, Echo Park, kind of iconic L.A. spot. We should be canceled for our L.A.-centric view of this. This I is did, a I don't know. Yeah, podcast. I didn't know about Echo Park before this, so... Give the non-LA people. This is this large park in sort of gentrifying neighborhood in Los Angeles, a stone's throw from downtown and from Dodger Stadium. It's a place that is sort of like a hub of social life in a certain part of the city. On a given Saturday, it's full of people riding swan boats. There's people selling elote. There's friends drinking their beers. I mean, it's just this place where people go to hang. Watering hole. It's Yeah. It's also a place that had throughout the pandemic, because of these changes in how the municipal code was being enforced, this encampment had spread it out just before the, the virus really got started. And in January 2020, there was sort of this confrontation between Rec and Parks rangers and activists and homeless people, and they prevented it from being cleared. And then the virus occurred. And throughout the virus, this encampment sort of grew in size. And the people who were living there said, this is close to water. Service providers come here. There are bathrooms. There's a logic for why we are here and not anywhere else. And this encampment became more entrenched. There was a community garden. There was a mutual aid table. Activists brought phone chargers, which is a big thing. And it grew and grew and grew. What came with that were overdoses, crime spiked. But what was notable about the spikes in crime the victims of many of these crimes were predominantly homeless. So we were watching homeless people being preyed upon in many cases. But for many residents of the nearby neighborhood, which is this gentrifying neighborhood that has many work-class Latino people living there, they had nowhere to take their kids when they were told to not leave the house. And that was very hard. So the parks, this encampment keeps growing. And the local city councilman, Mitch O'Farrell, is under intense pressure to do something about it and kind of is unable to formulate a plan, and this encampment basically takes over the entire west side of this park. And we get to sort of February and March of this year, and we keep hearing from the councilman, I alone will fix this, no one can do anything about it, but he is unable to offer something conclusive. And for weeks, my colleagues and I had been hearing rumors about what's going to happen to the park in the run-up to a closure which was announced on basically 36 hours' notice and was only announced in advance because we reported it in the LA Times, they closed the park. But in the run-up to that, they had sort of flooded the area with service providers, outreach workers from the Homeless Services Authority, different nonprofits, offering people beds in Project Room Key. Not all of those people would have been the people you expect to go into Room Key. Room Key, again, is the temporary motel shelter program that we started during the pandemic. And really got a lot of those people who had been in the park out of it. But it all culminated in this final week where there were maybe 20 or 30 people still there who had either been unaware that something was happening, didn't believe it was going to happen, or didn't want to go. There were lots of activists who were very angry this was occurring. And there was very little patience for the city councilman who did almost no outreach in advance to say, hey, community, this is going to close. So on a Monday, we report it's closing. By Thursday, there is a fence up around the park. 186 people who were protesting outside of the park were arrested, including several reporters. And this whole experience was very traumatic for lots of people. Many questioned why there were so many cops involved in an effort that was supposed to be services first. Many people questioned like the amount of time and effort that had gone into something where many of the people had already left the park and what was left was their tents. And then many people also question the wisdom of using resources that were meant to protect people from a virus as part of a political priority. What I mean by that is we have a way of prioritizing people for services in L.A. It's called the coordinated entry system. You're given a number about how vulnerable you are on various different things. You're prioritized resources accordingly. What happened is that that was sort of thrown out the window. And in this case, you were prioritized based on the park you were in. The point being, if you're a 27-year-old guy, but you're living in this park, you suddenly jump the line and get a hotel room that may have been used in a different context for a person who was 65. And that frustrated a lot of people who saw this clearing of the park, 
which was successful in many ways in terms of getting people into transitional housing of different forms, as really being driven by political interests and satisfying constituents who actually live in houses, not the ones who are on the streets. Well, and not only that, you know, you hear time and again in talking to folks about the importance of being able to establish a connection with people who are living in the streets or are exactly. homeless and living in their cars, you know, unsheltered or not and not in permanent living, to be able to have that trust to get into a better living situation. And this sort of process, this very quick announcement followed by a dramatic criminal justice response, in many ways did a lot, from what I understand, to shatter or harm that ability to build trust between service providers and the homeless population. People who were living in the parks told us in the run-up to this closure that there was this menacing specter of something bad happening here. But we're never told this is the date, which think about bringing a dignity to a situation that's not ideal and there's no good options. And what this all underscores is how little housing there is, how little shelter there is. This would all be solved if we had tons of shelter units and tons of apartments for everyone. I mean, we don't. And that exacerbates the issues we see on our streets. You guys can speak to gaps in our housing supply and what that does. But I think that that makes all of this harder. And that building of trust, the length of time it takes to get paired with a voucher that you can bring to the market, the challenge of getting a unit in a permanent supportive housing building, all of these things make it harder for people on the streets who have been burned by various different entities, whether it's law enforcement, government, volunteers of all different stripes, why would they trust you? And that's a slow process, and it's a very hard one. And as we talked about before, you're dealing with a population that is very sick, and that all kind of conspires to make this process really difficult. Ben, you talked about Project Room Key and that being sort of the hotel rooms that were converted into shelter spaces. There's a big focus on Project Home Key. You know, there's a, a big push on the side of Governor Gavin Newsom to to spend $7 billion to grow that project, which last year there was around $800 million. And then there's a push on behalf of a lot of local governments to spend more money on sort of flexible local spending. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit to how Home Key sort of played out, is playing out in LA, and what that push for more flexible local spending means. How effective have all these things actually been on the ground? I think former pod guest Connor Doherty wrote it in the New York Times best and said, this program Home Key was one of our greatest successes in California and still a drop in the bucket. So Home Key was 6,000 units across the state. In LA, I think it was about 2,000 or 2,200. I don't have the numbers in front of me. As you said, hotels, but also some apartment buildings. And to grow the housing supply of LA by 2,000 in any way like is seen as a huge success. Well, the homeless housing supply. Sorry, homeless housing supply. Yeah. The pace at which the housing through Proposition Triple H, a housing bond, 7,500 units over 10 years, it's been very slow. So just this supply, this quick infusion using money that came from the federal government was applauded. And I heard from elected officials, I heard from people who work in the county and work in the city, all of whom said if they had had more time, they would have bought more buildings. That like there is a wherewithal and a willingness to go back to the market and say, give us more. And some of the challenges had to do with the size of the hotels they were buying. I think there were sort of restrictions. Could they buy smaller hotels and find a good use for them? You know, another thing that's in the budget that we didn't mention is money for boarding care. Boarding care is sort of taking homes and retrofitting them to be places where people with mental and physical illnesses who don't need to be in hospitals can live with some amount of supervision. These have been closing a lot. We've written about this in the paper. And when we talk about home key, I just want to clarify, it's all under that umbrella, but it's really 3.5 for these board and care facilities and the other 3.5 for the traditional hotel motel renovations. But again, this is seen as a great success and still a drop in the bucket. And I think that goes to a thing that Liam can speak to better than me, which is just Until we can get our arms around two or three things, one, a sort of more robust mental health care system, which people don't have to just go to the hospital, dealing with our criminal justice system, and then third, just the trends in housing that we see, unless we can get our arms around those kind of things, which are these big societal questions that we're all talking about a lot, people are going to always sort of feel unsatisfied with the way we spend money. I really feel that pretty strongly, and I think that lack of 
satisfaction will animate our mayor's race. I mean, it certainly feeds into the recall. And I imagine all elected officials feel this heat and it changes how they respond to the crisis for that reason. Before we wrap up here, I want to talk about one other place in the city where Echo Park, sort of the big clash already happened, and it's pretty well telegraphed that the next clash in LA is going to be over this issue, is going to be on the boardwalk in Venice. What have you been reporting recently on that, and how different is the situation out there than what it was like in Echo Park? Like Echo Park, Venice was a place where lots of homeless people were before the pandemic. Venice has been a place where there's been a lot of litigation, there's been a lot of fights about homelessness, but What's different there is you cannot put a fence up around Venice Beach. There's too many entries and exits. It's a two-mile stretch. It's one of the most trafficked tourist destinations in California, I think. Maybe is dealing with more drug addiction. That's very anecdotal, so I don't want to lean too far into that. But in Echo Park, we saw a big push with services flooding the zone, as they say. It's this encampment to home approach. And I think what we're going to see in Venice is a similar one. The local city councilman, Mike Bonin, has just been under really a torrent of criticism about the state of Venice and the state of the boardwalk. Again, crime is up there. Again, most of the crime, the victims are homeless. The majority of the homicides that have happened in Venice were against homeless people. Some of them were overdoses as well. So you're looking at a situation where people feel very unsafe and are very mad at the local councilman. His approach is very different than the approach of the councilman in Echo Park, who was quite secretive and quite willing to have LAPD sort of around. Bonin, who is sort of a favorite of progressives in LA, does not want that and has gone to battle with the sheriff recently who kind of trotted out in Venice to sort of say this is unacceptable. And so Bonin has gone to great lengths to sort of publicly message how there will be an extended period of time of outreach that is very intensive, coupled with resources that he is trying to cobble together. And all of these different options, he says, will be enough to get the people who are living on the boardwalk, if they want to go, get them a bed. It's not permanent, but it is something. The question is, Will that be enough? How much of a confrontation will there be around this? And we're sort of just at the beginning of that process. I think the next couple weeks will be very interesting to watch there. But again, it's sort of a story in contrast in terms of messaging about what you lead with and how kind of much of an open book you are. And Bonin spent hours talking to us about his plan and how he thinks this should be done. It remains to be seen if it will work. Ben, anything else that you want to make sure that our very vast and influential audience is aware of as it comes to homelessness in L.A. right now? Nothing that needs to be talked about today, but I think that the vastness of this issue only emphasizes that you need to have me back on. (laughs) And the mayor's race, our favorite judge, David O. Carter, who's been walking the streets of Skid Row for the last year and overseeing a lawsuit, there's so much happening on this issue and so much change is occurring on this subject and so many things are being tried to help people that I just will have to come back. A long time coming, Ben. I hope it was worth the wait, and we appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for walking us through so many issues. I'm happy to be here, and I can't wait to come again. Thank you so much for listening to our new episode of Gimme Shelter. Big thanks to our editor extraordinaire, Victor Figueroa. Thank you so much, Victor. I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. One thing we hope to continue is publishing every two weeks. Right now it's the summer and we're still getting our bearings. So there might be some weeks that it's not, but we are hoping to get this out on a biweekly basis. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. 